Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I also feel very strongly that communication, every sailor has a story, you need to learn their stories, and sailors is a quote-unquote word that means anybody that works for you, whether you're a civilian or a military, you know, that's the way you get the best performance out of people. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. It is a warm but rainy day here in North Carolina, and this episode is brought to you by our sponsors, Leader Connect, Ignite Management Services, and Liberty Strength. These sponsors help me bring these shows to you each and every week, so I encourage you to click on their links below and check them out. Also, I want to remind you that the Qualified Leadership Book Series, which includes all three of my best-selling leadership books, is now available at my website, johnsrenny.com. You get all three books for 15% off the Amazon and Barnes & Noble price, but this offer is only available on my website. This is the perfect way to get 2024 off to a powerful start. So check it out at johnsrenny.com. Well, that is it. Today we're going to be talking about building the F-35 Lightning II, and my guest is Tom Burbage. Tom is a former U.S. Navy test pilot who worked for Lockheed Martin as an executive vice president general manager for both the F-22 Raptor and the F-13 Lightning II program. Now, we sat down and talked about the leadership lessons he learned leading the teams that designed and built the most lethal, survivable, and connected fighter aircraft in the world. Now, if you've ever wondered what it takes to complete a project of this magnitude, you're going to love this conversation. So, are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tom Burbage. Tom is a Naval Academy graduate, former Navy test pilot, industry leader, and author. As a Naval aviator, he accumulated more than 3,000 hours in 38 different types of military aircraft and retired as a U.S. Navy captain in 1994. He also worked at Lockheed Martin as an executive vice president and general manager for both the F-22 Raptor and F-35 programs. He is the co-author of a new book, F-35, The Inside Story of the Lightning II, and I am excited to have him on the show to learn from his leadership experience 
in the military and in business. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and it's great to be here with you, John. It's an honor to meet you, sir, and I'm looking forward to uh, having this conversation. You have a lot of history with uh, military and industry leadership, and so I'm just excited to talk to you. Uh, but I wanted to start off, I mean, your story in terms of your Navy career is pretty fascinating with as many aircraft as you trained on. So when did you develop your passion for flying? Was it before you went to the Naval Academy? And then um, how, what kind of unique opportunities did you have as a Naval a aviator? Well, I think I developed my passion for naval aviation before the flying part. Uh, my father was a career naval aviator. Pretty much all the role models in my young life, my high school life or so, were naval aviators. They always seemed to be having a good time, and they always seemed to enjoy flying. So I didn't actually fly until after I graduated from the academy and went into flight training in Pensacola. But um, I did uh, had my first squadron tour flying E-2s, which is a crude airplane of five people in the airplane. So it teaches you. Again, a lot about leadership lessons on how to operate as a crew, and you're responsible as the pilot for the other four lives in the airplane, so it's a responsibility factor to that also. And then I had the great mis great fortune of going to the Naval uh, Test Pilot School at Patuxent River, and that's where I flew a lot of the different airplanes. We got to fly some of the Air Force airplanes. A lot of, a good bit of the number in, in the 38 or, or one or two or three flights in a, in a type of airplane. We flew sailplanes, helicopters, so you get to fly a wide variety. And then I, when I left active duty, went to work for Lockheed Martin. I flew A7s in the reserves, mm. which allowed me to stay current in a jet. And so when I got to F-35, I tried to fly with all the different air forces in the countries that were part of the F-35 program, which was a very unique opportunity and something most people wouldn't get to do. But uh, because I had the currency in the A7 at the time, I was able to do that. So that's where all of the variety came from. Probably one of the most challenging ones that I was the, on the aircraft carrier USS Eisenhower. A nuclear carrier, and um, flew the ship's airplane. At that time, every carrier had one airplane that they owned to fly passengers back and forth. Had to fly with some pretty high-level people, the Prime Minister of Israel and others, bring them out to the ship for a day at sea. So, again, you get the responsibility factor of saying, you know, you got other lives in the airplane with you, and you want to make sure that everything stays safe the whole time. So, that that's kind of a short summary of my variety of airplanes on aviation. <laughs> Does it surprise you that the Eisenhower is still like out there today? It's it's actually deployed right now uh, outside the Red Sea. It's <laughs> flying. I I was actually the V two division officer, the catapult and the resting gear officer. Um, so I was on the flight deck the whole time of, on its maiden cruise. Mm -hmm. Oh wow, wow, that's crazy. Well, I, you know, I've I've been out in the Navy thirty years this year, and uh, my my uh, I was on the USS Tennessee, and she's still making deployments. It's it's crazy to think that. You know the 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 long life of some of the naval assets is pretty amazing. It really is. It really is. Yeah. So, what were some of the life lessons you learned from your time in the service? Well, I think um, you know it's it, it, it's on different levels. You know, when I was in a squadron, um, you have a, an assignment. I was a maintenance officer for a while, and uh, and you know the airplanes, the other people are flying are sort of dependent on you doing your job right. So you have a sense of of developing a high performance team. Um, Probably the most uh, aggressive place where that occurred was on the flight deck of the Eisenhower, where I had about 140 uh, sailors that were average age was probably about 20, and were handling these high-performance airplanes, moving around the flight deck, um, noisy, dangerous kind of a place. So you really get into building a high-performance team, building trust and confidence with the people that work for you, as well as the chain of command upward, 
which may be the big difference between corporate world and and uh, the military world is the way the chain of command works is much more rigid in the military side. You have to be able to have the confidence of your seniors, but also have to have your team below you that's willing to fly and fight with you. Um, so it's a little bit different there. Um, certainly in terms of the risk, if you're in a in a front deployed situation or or even beyond that, a combat situation is even more critical. So a lot of the same skills apply, but they may be at a slightly different level. Uh, but it's all about building teams. It's all about people that want to work for you, people that will go to great lengths to do the job right. Um, and that takes a lot of effort to build that team both up and down. Mm. Did you have any any particular people that uh, leaders maybe that um, you looked up to or that that helped you develop your leadership skills uh, or just anyone in particular that stood out to you? I tried to uh, learn from every situation that I was in. I had some really good commanding officers um, that I thought carried themselves as real leaders. I had others that weren't quite so good. They either were lost their temper on occasion or you know, had some sort of, um, I would say, a minor deficiency in their leadership quality. So I always tried to copy the ones that seemed to be able to build the strongest team, seemed to be able to have the respect and even in some cases the love as the, as the guys that worked for them. Uh, and willing to perform extraordinary things. I think that the mark of a leader, of a true leader, is the ability to take ordinary people and make them do extraordinary things. Um, so, again, try to pick the best qualities and, and mimic those to the extent that you can. Everybody's human. Everybody has their own frailties. But um, I also feel very strongly that communication, every sailor has a story, you need to learn their stories. And sailors is a quote-unquote word that means anybody that works for you, whether you're a civilian or a military. Um, and, you know, that's the way you get the best performance out of people. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, I, I think that was the magic that I learned in the military. When I came in, I ran eight different manufacturing plants throughout my career. And we got to know our, our teams like, well, of course, uh, in a submarine small, and we stood these long watches you know, in tight, cramped quarters. So we really got to know our sailors. We really got, they got, and they really got to know me. And I think that was what allowed us to build trust, build rapport, um, you know, get, get difficult things done. We shared so much, you know, it was a shared responsibility, shared accountability, shared vulnerability. You know, if, if we screwed up, we were dead, you know, type of thing. Um, and I, and I found that that kind of building that rapport with the people working for me, uh, I, I found found that worked really well in the Navy, and I took that right to the business world. I was just wondering if that was some a similar experience with you, whereas you really got to know your team when you're in the Navy, and whether that was similar with your experience uh, in the in the corporate world. Uh, very much so, um, and it and it occurred on different scales. You know, um, mm -hmm. it, it also depended on which part of the company you were in. Uh, there is a lot. There are parts of the company which I wasn't in, like finance and things like that, where a lot of his desk work and mm. which nine to five work. And then there's the other side of program management and business development, those kind of things where you're much, I think they're more like the military because you're more interactive with people. It's more important to build strong relationships. Um, I did a little, re little research on your books before I came on. And I think you captured uh, the lessons of the military really well on industry that I looked at. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. And I think, uh, Carrying those forward doesn't. You know, you're, it's all about teams and, and building teams. And 
the environment you're building a team in might be slightly different when you're deployed on a ship than it is when you're in an office building, but it's the same principles of building a strong team. Mm. So, um, I, you know, when you, when you went into, when you left the Navy and you went into the corporate world, I mean, you're obviously in senior, senior leadership positions there. Did you find yourself, you know, kind of going back to lessons you learned in the Navy as far as, um, you know, uh, as far as experience, you say, well, I, this worked in a, in, in military situation. Let me use it here. Did you find yourself going back to some of those lessons when you were leading teams in, in, uh, in the corporate world? I think to you know probably not consciously. I mean, I didn't think mm-hmm. back on a specific event that happened when I was in a squadron, but I think it becomes part of your DNA. It becomes part of the way you think, and then and then you think like that, you know. So yeah, I think uh, I, I think it was all important in terms of building the foundation uh, to be successful in some of these larger projects. If you think about the F thirty five, is just a it's just a small example. There were three major prime contractors that were teamed and we had to, and none of them like to consider themselves a subcontractor. And so forming the leadership team, you basically had to, and we use this as an example all the time, take your company badge off and put your JSF t-shirt on. Mm. You know, so everybody's on the JSF team. You're not a Northrop guy or a BAE guy or a Lockheed Martin guy. You you are a, a JSF person. And that was kind of counter because we hadn't had a new start, a big new program like that in quite some time. They they're coming a decade apart now or even more. Mm-hmm. So you, so building that uh, grounds up team is always a, is always a challenge, but, but, uh, but that's what you have to do. And then you have to do the fundamental principles of communicating and understanding and getting feedback and, and always trying to make uh, a, a better performing team than, than what you are. And uh, those things, I was very blessed to have really good leaders that were part of my group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we learned from each other. No, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So let's get into that. Let's talk about the F-35 project. You have a book out that's called F-35, The Inside Story of the Lightning II. What are some aspects about the F-35 program that maybe the public may not be aware of? Like, I just learned that there was three contractors working together. I didn't even know that. So what are some other things that maybe the public may not be aware of on this project? Well, the the complexity factor is, is very... Um, I would say much more complex than even than other high technology programs like the F-22 were complicated programs, but they were single service. Mm. The F-35 had three contractors, three prime contractors teamed at the top. We were building three different versions of the airplane for the three services, and the services are not prone to building a common airplane. Right. Marines want theirs, and the Navy wants theirs, and so this was kind of going into... It's not that it hadn't been tried in the past. It just hadn't been very successful in the past. So we had that. And then we had um, the the plan was being built for our three U.S. services, as well as the original partnership was eight other countries. So we had nine nations that were part of it. And and the government-to-government agreements allowed those nations to participate industrially in the development, in the design development test, and then eventually production of the airplane. So... Yeah, that that added another layer of very complex uh, personal relationships on top of it. Every country, every one of those countries has our, has a, a parliament or a congress like ours. Every one of them has a department of defense like ours. Every one of them has to fight to preserve budgets for the program. So uh, you you wind up not only trying to run the day-to-day contracted activities to get these airplanes done and out there and tested, you also had to run 
you know, interference through those different bureaucratic processes in nine nations. Today, that number is 19. Now, so it's even more complicated over time. And a lot of that was due to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and some of the uh, European NATO countries that fly and fight with our equipment. Now their equipment needs to be modernized and updated. So, so it's only gotten a little more complicated over time. Um, but that, those were the kind of things that we had to think about as we put together the overall program. Um, when you look at the technical side, some other things were happening at the same time. Uh, the pilot population was moving into the females and into mm-hmm. the lightweight Asian males that were in some of the countries that were now going to buy the F-35. So if you think about what, what does that mean? Well, that means the ejection seat has to be able to get a light, small light person out of the airplane, as well as the big guy who's 235 pounds when he's naked and not leave the big guy in the airplane and make sure the little guy doesn't get hurt, the little gal. So that created a, a new technical issue that we hadn't seen in ejection seats in the past before, just by basically expanding that pilot population much lower down in the weight. So things like that. We also had to take two of the three airplanes to sea, and stealth characteristics up to this point in time had been pretty technically uh, exacting. If you had a damage to a stealthy airplane, you normally had to go into a hangar with temperature and humidity controls to fix it. And as you know, that's not the environment you have on a hangar deck or a flight deck at sea. So probably one of the biggest technical challenges we had was was enabling the airplane to think of stealth in a different way, still be extremely hard to find on radar, but be impervious to the saltwater, you know, uh, non-temperature controlled environments of ships. So things like that were, were technical factors that kind of evolved as we went through the early days of development and test. Wow. You know, I just, as I have an engineering background, just thinking about just those few items you mentioned, you know, your, your, your brain hurts because you're like, wait a second, I got to deal with, you know, all these different types of pilot weights and sizes I have to deal with because, you know, I mean, as, as, as somebody who spent some time at sea, the sea is not forgiving, right? Salt, salt air is terrible for anything. Uh, and now you're putting out a very high tech aircraft in that kind of non-temperature controlled salt spray kind of environment. Uh, yeah, that's uh, a very much a, a major challenge. There's one other technology that was not related to the airplane that wound up being somewhat influential on the program, and that was the rise of social media and the internet. Mm. For the first time, we could actually connect um, people through the internet, through classified ways of doing that, to allow others to participate in, in the design and development of the airplane in one common database. That sounds like a bunch of words, but it's really important to do that. Not, not say you build the wing, you build the back, you build the front. Everybody's working in the same database at the same time. So we could really develop a highly integrated airplane. But the rise of social media became a factor as, as critics on the program could now be connected around the world. Yes. Yeah. Right. It wasn't necessarily the case in earlier airplanes. Um, we didn't have the amount of international participation that we had on F-35, but and everybody's a critic, you know, at least uh, during the development days of a program. So that became quite a factor that we had to understand and deal with as, as we went. It's really interesting you say that because, you know, even maybe 15 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, you couldn't find, you know, a group of people around the world that would be you know, against or for some particular topic. Now, today, whatever you might be against or whatever you might be for, 
you can find someone in the world that has that same belief system as you because of the, the rise of social media. So if you don't like the F-35 program, for example, you're going to find somebody else out there that has that same core belief as you. And now you can group together before you couldn't, right? There would be there'd be just single people or your small group of people around the world. Now you have this uh, ability to, yeah, I, I never really thought about that. And that's certainly one of the challenges in leadership in the modern modern era, because you do have this rise of, um, you know, various stakeholders that can rise up against any particular uh, thing that you're trying to build. And as you say, it's easy to be a critic. It's really hard to be a builder. Right. Right. That, that's exactly right. The uh, It was just an interesting phenomenon. We we did find positives to it as well as negatives to it, you know, and, and uh, the countries that were part of the program are our closest allies that fly and fight with us as a coalition and they operate our airplanes today. So we we were able to find some really good engineers in the UK and some really good engineers in Australia. And if you think about it, uh, we go from Fort Worth, Texas to the UK, that's about seven hours. UK to Australia is about seven hours. So you could do what we call follow the sun engineering. Yeah. And we could be, we're all in the same database now. So we could, you know, just work an engineering package around the world without paying overtime. So you can yeah. basically get 24 hours of engineering on straight time costs. Yeah, so there were yeah. ways to exploit it a little bit, but uh, but it was just a really interesting phenomenon that was part of the story. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. As a leader, you're responsible for the mission and the people assigned to you. Regardless of the size of your team, employees are depending on you for their lives and careers. For the sake of your team and the people who entrust you with this role, you need to master the skills to become a great leader. Best-selling leadership author John Rennie is proud to introduce the Qualified Leadership Book Series. This new series teaches you how to become a people-centered leader. Great leaders know that employees who are respected, appreciated, and allowed to grow will go the extra mile. These books provide real-world leadership wisdom written from a hands-on perspective. If you want to be a more effective leader, this is the one book series you should read this year. This three-book series contains the following best-selling leadership books. I Have the Watch, You Have the Watch, and All in the Same Boat for one low price of $39.99. Begin your journey to become a leader worth following. Go to johnsrenny.com and get your order in today. This episode is brought to you by Leader Connect, a leadership training company and video platform founded by the leadership book author and deep leadership podcast guest, Neil Jurd. Leader Connect is a video and podcast streaming platform for leaders and teams. Watch it alone or as a team, and each video supports you and your team, allowing you to improve performance and build a great culture. Join hundreds of experts and learn about leadership, planning, public speaking, team building, mindfulness, and a range of other subjects that will help you lead well and build a great team. I'm proud to say that I'm one of the experts on this platform. Leader Connect is offering a 10% discount to all deep leadership listeners. Go to leader-connect.co.uk and enter the code DEEP at checkout. Master your leadership 
with Leader Connect. This episode is brought to you by Ignite Management Services. Ignite is led by Mike Watson, who you might remember from episode 137. Mike and his team believe that everything starts with leadership, whether it's strategy execution or cultural transformation. It's the role of the leader to create the conditions for their people to succeed. The team at Ignite can help you develop critical habits to enhance your leadership capability and transform your business. Ignite Management is now offering the Resilient Leadership Assessment Tool. This is an online questionnaire designed to assess and guide leadership development, coaching, and team building. It provides leaders an opportunity to gain insights into their leadership strengths and development needs. After taking this assessment, you will receive a custom detailed report that provides practical and actionable recommendations to enhance your effectiveness. I have taken this assessment myself and found it to be extremely valuable in helping me make changes to my leadership approach. Right now, Ignite is offering 15% off the price of this tool to the deep leadership audience. Go to ignitemanagement.ca and enter the code START15 at checkout to get started today. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, and again, technology has enabled this. This, this is not something that could have been done, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So now this where you can do engineering around the clock, uh, around, around the entire clock, uh, you know, using partners from various air, air, uh, nations. That's, that's remarkable. And it's also, I think, a challenge in leadership because we haven't had to lead like this before, right? So I was just going to ask you, what were some of the leadership lessons or challenges maybe you had throughout this, this program? Obviously, very complex. You've got multiple different um, contractors. You've got, multiple, you've got up to 19 nations. What, what are some of the other challenges uh, from a leadership perspective? Well, I think well, in the early days, the biggest challenge we had was the contract. People have forgotten this, but the contract was signed about six weeks after 9-11. Mm. Part of that was not that the F-35 would have a role in what comes beyond 9-11, but, but it was strengthening the coalition that was same countries were going to be involved in trying to fight terror. So the contract was awarded much quicker than we expected. Mm. We expected to have a contract around the first of the year. It was awarded uh, the day that they announced it in the Pentagon. So we came back to work on Monday, and we were already behind schedule, so to speak. Jeez. So, so we, had to, um, we had to do a number of things. We had to hire. Uh, we were planning on having about three months to bring on the workforce. We had to start hiring that week. Mm. We were bringing on new people at about 100 a week. Wow. If, you, if you've been in an HR department, 
Um, and that was sustained for a year. We went from about 180 people in 2000, end of 2001 to about 4,000 at the end of 2002. Wow. That's just in Fort Worth. They were, they're not the similar, not as large number, but similar percentage increases in the other places. And trying to, to bring that volume of people on and make them productive quickly is a huge challenge. Uh, we had we invented something called uh, onboarding, which now is a common term in, in industry, because we had to be able to um, teach, you know, there's it's acronym soup when you first come into a program like this. You had to be able to teach the language. You had to be, you had brand new, about 50% of the new hires were brand new engineers right out of college to try and keep the engineering rate under control in terms of cost. And we saw, we had a phenomenon that we called reverse mentoring, where the old the old crusty developmental engineers would whip these young engineers in line, but not really have any clue how to use these new computer databases. And the new engineers coming out were very proficient in that. So they were teaching the older guys. So it was really kind of, it was a natural team building element to it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, had to, you couldn't be too rough on the new guys because they were teaching you along while you were teaching them. So, so there were challenges like that, that, that in, the, in the early days, trying to get a productive global team in places that, uh, and the numbers that we were dealing with was was uh, was was very much of a challenge in the early days. But it was labeled the largest risk by the Department of Defense was our ability to staff with the quality engineering staffing that we needed. Um, it's it's interesting that you say that because I think in in my career the most difficult thing I ever did was was to grow a business quickly. And people think, well, growth is easy, right? Just hire a bunch of people and get get off the ground. I I found it to be one of the hardest things to do especially with maintaining a culture and maintaining, like you mentioned, the acronym soup, like this is this. Okay. So this is our company. This is the way we do business. And oh, let's have 4,000 people join the company and understand this is, this is who we are. And this is how we do business. Uh, they're, they're all coming in with all sorts of different backgrounds, histories, different experience levels. They, they use different systems, and you're trying to bring them all in and to to be work under one roof and have one culture. I think it's one of the hardest things to do as a leader. The thing we did that was also interesting and in the software skill here is, is um, we, we formed a group of what we call guiding principles in mm. order to create a JSF culture. Because not only were we going across three different corporate cultures in the U.S., we were going across this international uh, industrial base also. So we had uh, guiding principles and we had... Um, common objectives. And if you walked into a conference room in uh, Brisbane, Australia, or you walked into one in the UK, or you walked into one in, in uh, El Segundo, California, the, the exact same posters are in those conference rooms. And we would start our staff meetings for the first year or so, reviewing the guiding principles. Are we really living by these? Are we forming the culture the way we want it to form? Uh, even to the extent of giving an annual award this didn't make me real popular with Lockheed Martin, but but uh, we we gave an annual Lockheed Martin award to a team that was made up of the three contractors all in Fort Worth working on this one project. The team won the award, but normally corporations don't give their internal award to another corporation. So, yeah, right. So you had to you can't you can't reward two people out of a team of six that that cooperatively did this. You know, so so we had things like that. There were kind of cultural adjustments by the by the incumbent culture, but we want it to be important parts of the new emerging JSF culture. 
Uh, that's fantastic. So when people get the book, I mean, it, it, it's really going to be the whole story, right? You, it, the book is, tells the whole story of of the F-35 program and the challenges and and how you went from, you know, zero to, to 100 miles an hour in that short amount of time in 2001. So what other things can they find in this book? Well, you'd be surprised how many people that worked on the program have now read the book and said, I had no idea it was that hard. Because <laughs> their little world was in one, yeah. you know. But um, let me tell you just a little bit of background about the book. The book was started by two other people. The other two authors that are shown on the cover of the book. And they went to Lockheed Martin. They went to the joint program office on the government side. And they went to the Australian. The other two live in Australia. They went to the Australian Department of Defense. And they requested permission to interview people. That's all they wanted was access. Nobody's helping fund anything. It's all just access. And they started doing these interviews. I had recently retired. And I got a call saying, hey, this guys are writing this book. They want to come interview you in Atlanta. So they came to Atlanta, spent a whole day with them, and it became obvious, quickly obvious to me that they didn't understand the whole story of the program. Mm -hmm. They had come in about the 10-year point. They were part of the evaluation team that was trying to make sure we were on track to actually deliver an airplane. So they didn't have the whole build-up story. I said, you know, there's a lot of books about program management taking lessons from the F-35, but there aren't any that tell the real human journey from mm. how the program was put together. So they said, well, why don't you come help us there? So I said, well, you know, I've always kind of thought about doing something like that. And so um, uh, we redid the table of contents, and, it, and it's really about how the program was won initially, how we put together the teams, how we built the culture. And there's a deep dive into a couple of the international countries. The UK is one, Australia is another one where we go down into what was the challenge they were facing? Mm. How did they, they were really important parts of the program. So it tells that whole story. There are some technical parts, the ejection pieces described in there and things like that, that get into some of that. You don't have to be an engineer to read the book. In fact, we had a ghostwriter that was helping us and his uh, wife is a, is a romance novelist. <laughs> He's a technical <laughs> guy. You may have heard of his name is David Poyer. He's written a number oh, of yeah. Yeah. books. And, um, all the chapters had to go through Lenore, his wife, so she could say, I, can't, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Yeah, this is too complicated. And we would make them less complicated, more readable for, for the general public. So it's really the human story of the F-35, and it goes into a lot of the challenges and, the, and, the, um, and how we overcame those. So. I love that. I absolutely love that you focus on the human side, the human journey, because I think when we see or hear about the F-35, you get caught up in the technology, you get caught up in the, the you know, this amazing piece of technology, right? But it's people, at the, at the end of the day, it's people that, that created this technology. And it's, it's, it's people who led people to create this technology. And to me, that's a story that's more interesting than the technology itself. Even as an engineer, I, I'm fascinated by how do you get, I, you know, all these people around the world to accomplish this really difficult thing. And uh, that's the fascinating story to me. Yeah. And, and um, we did a little over 100 interviews. Mm. And we did all the leaders that were on the government side. We did uh, somewhere between four and six in each of the individual countries. Uh, so there, and, and I like to say it's their book. It's not my book. You know, the book is, it, it, was, it took us four years to do it. And a lot of that time was digesting these interviews and trying to pick the salient points out of them. And every, everywhere we used an interview in the book, we didn't use it as a direct quote. We used it, some, some cases we did, but usually it was just, this is what this person 
experienced and did, we would send that back to the person that we interviewed and have them read it first to make sure that they were happy with it. Because we don't want people unhappy with the way we wrote the book. So it's it's told um, it's it's told as really how does how does all this come together? How does the airplane sort of emerge out of this massive global challenge? And then uh, how did the airplane do with its testing? And if there was a, if there's one complaint, the the real diehard engineering technical guys wanted to know more about the classified stuff. Right, of course, they all want to know that, right? Yeah, it's not classified. So, yeah, no, I like that, and I think I think again for the listeners of this show in particular, they're going to want to know that human story because that's really a fascinating part. How do you get people to do group of people, diverse group of people, to do ne- nearly an impossible task? And I think that's that's the story that's inter- interesting to me. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it was, a, so, it was fun. It was fun writing it. it was a lot of work, but it was fun writing it. And it was fun. For me to go back ten years, you know, I'm retired ten years now. To go back and and re-talk to the people that I worked with putting this together, you know, fifteen twenty years ago when we started, um, they all they all were. I, I thought it would be harder to do than it was. They were all anxious to participate. Yeah, yeah, I love that because I think everybody wants to hear. They want to tell their story. They want to share their experiences, and I think it's great when there it comes along. Like I said, the, you and your co-authors could put these stories together because that's something that everyone who is part of that program can, can, you know, buy that book and give it to their family. So this is what I did over that period of time. You know, why, why I wasn't home on weekends or why I was, you know, staying late in the office. This is why, you know, and, and I know when I wrote my second book, my parents read it, my, and they said, we had no idea you did those things. You know, like, you know, I didn't really talk about it. We just, I just did it, you know? So it's interesting. I I love that. What I thought was humorous when it, I said the book to, I gave a free book to everybody that interviewed and we interviewed a number of the test pilots and they, their life is in the cockpit of the airplane and they're mm. called it the best seat in the house. You know, they're, they're, right, they're right. having the fun flying the airplane. The, the feedback was almost uniform from each of them saying, I had no idea how hard it was to put that international partnership together and the extent you guys had to go to, 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 to the non-flying stuff, you know, and how, how do you build a team and stuff like that. So I, it was, it was good feedback. I mean, I enjoyed having them tell me that because, um, you know, they, they had their job to do, but they were, you know, a little bit of a c- cocoon relative to the politics that were going on everywhere. Uh, so that's fantastic. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, links to, the, to how to get to that book here in a little bit. Before we wrap up, I was going to ask you one question. I know you, uh, you, you're friends with Fred Stuvik, who's a friend of the show. He's been on twice. Uh, we love Fred uh, here at Deep Leadership. But you guys are working on some things with respect to leadership and and the and and what's happening at the service academies. Maybe share a little bit about what you guys are working on in terms of trying to get the right type of leaders coming out of the military academies these days. Well, it's we started working together about three or four years ago. Fred and I go way back fifty years to when uh, when he was a young student at the prep school, and I was one of the assistant football coaches that had just graduated from the Naval Academy. And Fred was quite an athlete, as as I know you know. And he's a very good uh, leader and a very good human being. And we've reunited in this effort to, um, to re- I don't know what the right word is. We, we don't want to be, come across as critics. I'm on the board of trustees for the Academy, so I'm an internal guy also. But we were very concerned about what we saw was a, a loss of focus on the development of real leaders, particularly leaders that are going to go into you know, forward deployed positions or into, even into combat. Um, the the curriculum, the 
admissions criteria had all changed dramatically from what we recalled. And we would have been bad, dumb, and happy, not even concerned about it, other than we got involved with a case that was going on that just seemed very unfair. It was during the summer of um, of the riots and, you know, lots, lots was going on in the country. And it soon became obvious that while we were focused on the service academies, and there's a similar group focused on the Air Force Academy and West Point, that the problem was bigger than that. It's a, it's a policy issue. It's an ideology issue sort of taking place around the country. Uh, a lot of us uh, wrote opinion pieces and op-eds, and a lot of them have been published. And we're sort of compiling, compiling them into a book um, that's going to come out in about a month. Uh, that's related to um, our perspectives on what's happened in the loss of leadership. And you can look at the number of commanding officers that have been relieved in the last mm. couple of years. You can look at incidency. You can look at um, any any criteria you want to look at, and it's clear that there's been some erosion in uh, the high-quality leadership development aspects of the service academies, in our opinion. Mm. So we've met with the superintendent. We've, we've raised our issues. Um, uh, we're still working our way through that, um, but there's a lot there's a lot going on in our country right now. For anybody that cares to uh, look under the covers, and what, what our concern is really not going to affect our lives; it's going to affect our kids and our grandkids. Maybe not even our kids as much as our grandkids. And so we're trying to raise a concern about the world that's going to be left behind. But that's that's been our focus. Uh, I, and I appreciate you doing that. I, I have a son who's in the Navy, and he just came back from. He was on one of the destroyers in the Red Sea getting shot at by the the, the Houthis. And uh, he just returned. And I can tell you this, he has an amazing commanding officer. And she, she just uh, had a change of command. He has a new commanding officer. And he seems to be of the same cloth. So the good news is there are still great leaders out there. But we have to be very concerned that that the service academies are creating you know, that, that that next generation of leaders that have the right principles and know how to lead people. Like you said, it's been far too many commanding officers been relieved. I'm shocked every time I almost, almost seems like every week there's a new commanding officer being relieved. So um, very important issue. I'm glad you guys are working on it. And and once the book is done, uh, you know, we'll have to, ha- we'll have to have you come back on the show and uh, maybe with Fred, maybe the two of you, we can uh, we can do it again and talk a little bit about what you guys worked on. So that's a really important issue. That'd be great. We'd love to do it. Yeah. Well, what final message would you like to leave with our listeners? Um, you know, I, I think it's it's uh, fundamental. Sometimes you can be overcome by complexity of a situation and how my house is ever going to come together. But then it breaks down to to really um, the fundamental leadership lessons that we learned way back when. You know, how do you um, how do you make sure that the welfare of the people that are working for you uh, comes ahead of your own in many cases? Um, and how do you how do you build the trust and and um, how do you build that leadership factor uh, and how do you mentor those coming along that are going to take your place and that you need to have at uh, various levels throughout the organization it, and it's it's everything we've talked about I think it's the fundamentals of leading its leading teams it's the fundamentals of of guiding principles it's the fundamentals of you know uh, helping people perform what seems to them maybe at certain points in time as impossible tasks. So um, that, that's that's what I look back on. And I think we did a reasonably good job across all the people that were working on the project to to try to understand that this is going to take a different kind of um, 
it's not project management. We're not looking at data and trying to make minor corrections on what the data is telling you. You're trying to lead people yeah. to an end objective. Yeah, yeah, that's such an important point. It's it's the human journey. It's the human story. It's it's people. Yeah, it comes right down to it. All that technology is wonderful, but at the end of the day, it's about leading people. And I, I love that you you broke it down that way. So, how can our listeners find out more about you and this new book? The book is on Amazon, um, but uh, we've also got our, our website that the three authors have because we have a number of books that are part of the deal and getting your book published. And that's a better place to go. It's better for the authors, and it's also better because it's a discount um, over what Amazon's selling the book for. And uh, we have autographed copies of the book and all those kind of things that people are interested. Uh, but but the, it's called F35InsideStory.com, um, and that should take you there. Um, it pretty much pops up as soon as you type it in. Um, but that's, that's the best option to get the book. Um, I think people will enjoy reading it. I think, you, like I say, you don't have to be an aeronautical engineer um, to, to read that. You know, there, there's a, a good bit of the technical journeys in there, but it's try to try to write it in terms that people can read and understand. And um, it's a it's a very interesting story. I don't know whether it'll ever be repeated at the scale that mm-hmm. the story was because. Um, Things are happening so fast now. You know, we're into the new world of AI and the new world of all these different technologies. And what's the next set of systems going to look like? Those are all open questions right now. But, but this was a this was a venture, and uh, and and like I said, the human journey I think is a real story of the book. Absolutely, that is so so good. So we're going to put link in the sh- uh, links in the show notes for these resources. And again, um, go to. Uh, the website that we have in the link so that you can make sure you get the the right copy of the book and you get it signed there as well. Uh, and again, the book is called F35, The Inside Story of the Lightning II. And again, this is the human journey. This is the story of how, um, how, the, how, how the leadership led a large group of people from all over the world to develop a very difficult and uh, amazing piece of technology. But it was just the human story. So I highly recommend... If you're interested in the i you know the idea of developing technology like this, you know, go ahead and get this book because it's going to really help you understand how to lead of such a big project like this. Tom, I want to thank you for coming on the show. You you've given us a lot to think about. You've shared a lot of great information. I really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate being here. It's great talking to you, John. I look forward to staying in touch. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. 
We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts, and hear the culture. Electrocast. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed.